Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet are uh, Erica, Gabby, and Tiffany today. And uh, Doug is not able to be with us um, due to other engagements that he had. Um, but we will have uh, Zoya's pet health segment towards the end of the show today. So welcome. Um, today we're going to talk about uh, a number of things. We're just going to kind of connect the dots about some general health topics, um, mainly uh, <clears throat> talking about uh, the influence of our modern world on our, our health via Wi-Fi, uh, cell towers, ambient radiation, that kind of thing. Uh, we're going to cover sleep and stress and proper breathing uh, with the Areolus program, um, some exercise, uh, water, earthing, and a number of other topics. So I'm um, glad that everybody is with us today. And that we're going to start out with a couple of articles. Um, that Tiffany has one that she's going to start us with, uh, talking about the spread of antibiotic-resistant superbugs. Yeah, so this has been a problem for quite a number of years with overuse and misuse of antibiotics. But the first article is antibiotic-resistant intestinal superbug has spread to a majority of U.S. states. And this was posted up on SOT in the last week. So this particular superbug is called Shigella sonai, and uh, 90% of the cases analyzed in Massachusetts, California, and Pennsylvania were resistant to Cipro, which is a really powerful antibiotic. And it's the top drug used to treat Shigella. Uh, the Shigella strains were also too potent for drugs like ampicillin or Septra. So uh, Shigella causes abdominal cramps, fever, and diarrhea, and it spreads quickly in nursing homes, hospitals, and daycares. So it's not just Shigella that's on the rise. Uh, there's also Staph aureus. Klebsiella, pneumonia, E. coli, and MRSA. So the more antibiotics we use, the faster the resistance spread. Uh, people using antibiotics to treat viral illnesses, which is not recommended. That kind of leads to the overuse of antibiotics, and plus all of the antibiotics that are fed to animals in these large factory farms. So there was another article that kind of ties into this, and it was posted on SOT in the last week or so. It's called uh, Ancient Anglo-Saxon Herbal Potion Found to Kill MRSA. And MRSA is methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. <laughs> so uh, researchers discovered this 1,000-year-old recipe, and it was used to treat styes on your eye like an infection infection in your follicle and your eyelash. I used to get those. They're kind of gross. Um, so the recipe called for leeks, garlic, wine, and bullock's gall, which is just an old word for ox bile. And uh, they let it sit for nine days in a brass vessel, and they applied it to the eye, and it actually killed the styes. So some modern-day researchers made a batch of this stuff, and they used it on mice infected with MRSA, and it killed 90% of it. And it worked just as well as vancomycin, which is like the top dog of antibiotics. Um, so that's 
that's it. There's a lot of um, other natural antibiotics, but that's not really a topic for this show, but there's loads of them. Maybe we can focus on that in another episode. So does anybody want to try this uh, Anglo-Saxon recipe and report back? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You know, I'm, I'm all for natural remedies, but I think that I would wait until I actually had MRSA to try that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I've had styes before, and I had no idea about any ancient remedies, herbs, or anything. And I didn't take antibiotics, and they kind of just went away on their own. I mean, they're pretty ugly and made well, you know, and, uh, kind of weird. An old wives' tale for styes in the eye is a hard-boiled egg, and you peel off the skin, and you put it in a clean sock, and you put it on your eye, and the heat and the sulfur from the egg bring the sty to a head. So that might be another natural mm. remedy for styes in the eye. Yeah. It stress the clean sock. Yes, clean sock. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Although maybe an, maybe an old sock would have some beneficial bacteria in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's called the toe jam cure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let's see. I believe we had another article for our, uh, for our general intro here about um, uh, some interesting news about uh, kids of uh, doctors that, or of scientists at Los Alamos not being vaccinated. Yes. So this really ties in great to our um, talk last week about virus mania with Dr. Kernline. And uh, this article is called Top Government Scientists Say No to Vaccines for Their Kids. And it was uh, posted on March 27, 2015 by John Rappaport. And uh, John Rappaport has written a lot about vaccines. He wrote a lot about the CDC whistleblower um, coming out about the MMR vaccines. And he's got a a great writing style and um, uses a a sense of humor and some pretty obvious, you know, clues on on what we're dealing with here. And I just want to give a quote he has in, in the beginning of the article from a book called Medical Nemesis that was published back in 1977. It says, the combined death rate from scarlet fever, diphtheria, whooping cough, and measles among children up to 15 shows that nearly 90% of the total decline in mortality between 1860 and 1965 had occurred before the introduction of antibiotics and widespread immunization. In part, this recession may be attributed to improved housing and to a decrease in the virulence of microorganisms. But by far, the most important factor was a higher host resistance due to better nutrition. So it's kind of our our, uh, topic on the show today is, you know, lifestyle choices, as Kernline had talked about in last week's show. So just a little overview of this article on uh, March 20th. Oh. so in the in the Albuquerque Journal, Los Alamos schools top New Mexico in vaccine exemptions. And so that's the highest rate of non-vaccination in the state. 
And so um, he t says it's, uh, we're talking about parents who work at Los Alamos ma uh, labs. And so these people have advanced degrees in science, but they also work for the federal government. So he asks the question, you know, you think this uh, vaccine rate would be about 100%, no questions asked, since these folks work, you know, in these labs and for the government. And um, he speculates that they've done some actual research on their own, and they've decided that vaccines are unsafe and ineffective. And for those who may not know, Los Alamos Labs, they do nuclear bomb and disease research, right? So these doctors would be in the know. He goes on to um, talk about how he wrote a book um, about AIDS uh, in 1987, and he began interviewing people about their health. And what he received, uh, what he discovered was that a number of people were in excellent health and they had never received vaccinations. So he comes to the conclusion that one common factor emerged in my interviews with very healthy people is that they all had good nutrition. And uh, the more people I spoke to, the more obvious something became. Non-medical, naturally acquired immunity to disease could become a problem for the medical cartel. And he's written a lot about the medical cartel. You can Google that in the thought search engine and you'll find a good article about that. So he goes on to, to talk about the rabid campaign to inject every human with a host of vaccines and it, how it's just utter madness. And it intentionally ignores the fact that natural immunity should be the goal, which can be achieved through non-medical means. So, uh, and then... He uh, cites also the National Vaccine Information Center Advocacy, Advocacy Port Portal for information, and then um, goes on to just talk about how we talked about in the show last week how these mass vaccine campaigns of fear are, are all about just that, fear. The fear of getting sick and the need for vaccines and that everybody should follow, no questions asked. So the Los Alamos labs, obviously these parents are not the case when it comes to vaccination. And uh, they're, uh, they would play strictly by the book with, with everything else, but not on that one. And that should give everybody a clue that there's some serious concerns. So check out that article by John Rappaport. Totally. I think it's increasingly <clears throat> evident that, uh, you know, people in the know, people with scientific and medical experience are, are speaking out about vaccinations and about the dangers involved. Um, so, you know, I know for quite a while, um, you could call it the pro-vax versus anti-vax argument has been, well, anti-vaccination people have no science on their side, which is patently false. Um, and, you know, I, I personally don't have a science background, um, so, you know, I, I can't convince anyone on my own, but uh, I'm, I'm happy that these people are coming forward, um, you know, so there can be a little bit more of a reasoned uh, debate about it instead of just being called a nut job. Exactly, and it gives credibility to these people that have questions, you know, and, you know, what are, what are we really doing? What kind of... Uh, experimental, you know, shots are we receiving? And after last week's show, we see a lot of these 
so-called epidemics are just really more lifestyle, diet, you know, uh, natural immunity issues. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Well, let's, I think uh, there was even a uh, AMA. They published or sent out a, a memo saying that they were against mandatory vaccinations for themselves, at least. So I yeah. think the higher you go into the upper echelons of society, I mean, those people, they know what's up. They don't take vaccines. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I think that the the powers that be are still, you know, obviously we have a lot of these other um, kind of pathological things in place in our society, but uh, I, I do think that they're a little bit nervous about, you know, instituting mandatory vaccines uh, in the sense that uh, mm-hmm. there would be such a backlash of people. If it really came out like you're going to be vaccinated or else you're going to be fined or face jail time or something like that, that uh, that there really would be some sort of a backlash. But maybe I have too much faith in the, uh, mm-hmm. in the society in that regard. <laughs> I don't know. We'd have to wait. <laughs> We're in the power to be. <laughs> yeah. First, I thought there would be a backlash about a lot of other things that are already in place. So. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, lifestyle choices and, uh, you know, modern uh, society and the things that are damaging our health, um, Erica has some information uh, she wanted to go over uh, regarding um, resonant frequencies, uh, ambient uh, radiation. You know, the word, <clears throat> this may be common knowledge, but just to say that the, the word radiation doesn't just apply to nuclear radiation. Radiation just means waves that radiate. Um, so uh, we have a lot of ambient radiation in our environment, um, uh, even just from power lines alone, but also uh, especially nowadays from cell towers, from Wi-Fi, and um, more and more information is coming out that those things are affecting our health. Uh, most importantly, our, our sleep, uh, which is you know one of the one of the main cornerstones of um, of a healthy lifestyle is proper sleep. So, Erica, do you want to cover some of that for a little bit? Yeah. So um, at the end of March, there was a, an article called The Growing Cell Tower Menace to Our Health by Catherine Fromovich, and she's written a lot about vaccinations as well. But she um, discusses this issue that's happening in Los Angeles, and she says that something's cropping up all over Los Angeles, California, like poisonous mushrooms with equally toxic effects, but it's not poisonous mushrooms. It's the standard cell tower, along with RF and EMF public relation pitches that are generated. So um, she basically talks about concerned Los Angeles feeling there are several issues regarding the cell towers being constructed in their area. Most prominent concerns are the health effects of EMFs, electromagnetic frequencies, and constitutional Fourth Amendment privacy matters. Um, She's saying that maybe if people read this article, they'll become activists. And so she talks about this Smart Grid Consumer Collaborative, SGCC. It's an industry group that is active in discounting, nullifying, and educating about the quote-unquote safety issues of any smart technology and its inability to cause health problems. And so um, in Los Angeles, 
uh, L.A. firefighters are actually dramatically opposing cell towers near their fire stations. And uh, the cell towers are being promoted as part of a homeland security issue. So she has a quote here from Citizens for a Radiation-Free Community and other Los Angeles stakeholders and citizens are joining the L.A. Firefighters Union at a Los Angeles Board of Supervisors in protest against LA RICS, the Los Angeles arm of the federally funded cell tower infrastructure through FirstNet, which is using Homeland Security to force their federal cell tower system into LA County and other areas in California. So um, on the 24th of March, um, firefighters and activists presented their legitimate concerns. And the uh, they do not wish to have severe health effects like cancer or be surveilled by this new surveillance-capable cell tower infrastructure. They believe that this is cronyism, pork barrel, federal taxpayer money giveaways to private corporations at the expense of our constitutional rights to our health, life, property, and privacy. And... Um, you need to be concerned. So they say, even if you don't live near where a cell tower is being installed, you will be affected because there are special cell towers that promise to saturate 97% of Los Angeles if they go in. Oh. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's a frightening thought. And probably other people in other places have seen this happen. Like they have cell towers that look like trees, you know, you, you drive on the freeway and you see them everywhere. I mean, they're just, like she's saying, popping up like wild mushrooms. So the, um, the firefighters and the activists were successful in getting press coverage at the supervisor's special meeting. And um, there's a video on this article that you can watch. Um, but basically, they, they say that uh, this is microwaving people, and it was even in a CBS News clip that the cancer risk is there. And so supervisors listened to the citizens, and the firefighters actually didn't um, testify, but they just stood up and showed their solidarity. So she's saying some, sometimes actions speak louder than words. There's also similar cell tower rollouts in progress in other cities, such as Northern California, Houston, Texas, parts of Colorado, New Jersey, and New Mexico. And she said people in those states ought to wake up to what's going on around them. And she says if you are interested in more information about the nationwide program regarding cell towers and the problems associated with them, please contact Liz at People's Initiative News. And so it's kind of interesting that this um, article, you know, brought this issue back into the fold again because we've known about it and we've carried quite a few thought articles about electromagnetic radiation and how it affects your health. And um, I remember a few years ago I had watched a documentary called Residence, Beans of Frequency, and we have a, a link to the documentary on the thought page today. But it talked about um, the bees. That's kind of where, where my interest was, is um, do, does cell phone technology and towers affect bees? And so I just want to give a little synopsis of this excellent documentary. 
because I learned a few things and I figured I'd share it here. Um, so the, the, the documentary was made in 2012 by James Russell and John Webster. And it's the biggest change that life has ever endured, but not a single one of us can see, we can't see it, right? So it's, it's not a visible issue, this, this um, you know, frequency. And so the, the movie starts out with just a, an introduction of um, Alfred Schumann. And in 1951, he discovered what's called the Schumann Resonance. And it's basically the planet's pulse. And um, it, about 30 years before that, uh, uh, Hans Berger um, discovered the electrical frequency of the human brain, so what they called the alpha wave. And um, so this uh, Schumann resonance and this alpha wave are kind of the same hertz. And I'm not a scientist, so I'm not going to attempt to explain it. But basically, mm -hmm. they discovered that the pulse of the Earth was 7.83 hertz, and then the pulse of the human brain was the same. So there's a connection there, right? Um, and then in 1970, at the Max Planck Institute, there was a study done about circadian rhythms in connection with this Schumann residence, the Earth. And what they did was they wanted to study the effects of uh, people being isolated from the Earth's magnetic frequency. So they put students underground in a bunker, and um, they had no, uh, it was completely guarded from any sort of the Earth's uh, resonance. And what happened almost immediately is that the student's physical and mental health started to suffer. Um, their circadian rhythms were upset. And then when they went and they introduced the Schumann residence with a little generator of some sort, um, the students started to get better. So it was, it's a pretty interesting study to show how we are affected, you know, and we'll go into this later with the earthing thing, but how you know, this Earth's frequency and the human brain, there's definitely a relationship there. So the the movie is, the premise is, is that we're sensitive to frequency or magnetic fields. And um, right now in the world, you know, and this is back in 2012, there's 4 billion mobile phones in use around the world. And starting in the 1980s, there's over 5 million cells phone towers. So the grid was built without any thoughts of safety, right? And um, so on that line, you know, we, we have this relationship with the earth and we have this um, magnetic connection. And in 2000, Ritz this um, studied the navigational sense in birds or a compass. So they um, tested radio frequency, radio frequency fields on birds and to see if magnetics uh, or high frequency interfered with, with the bird's navigational sense. And um, they found that the cryptochromes were affected by man-made radio frequency fields. And um, for those who may not know, uh, cryptochrome, is the Greek word means hidden color, 
and it's a class of flavoproteins sensitive to blue light found in both plants and animals. And they found these cryptochromes in humans as well. So cryptochromes are magnetically sensitive and they're involved in the circadian rhythm. So basically they found that we're, we're vulnerable to magnetic frequency and um, again, electrical sensitivity, things like Wi-Fi, deck phones, cell towers. And um, I would like to defer to Gabby here a little bit about the cryptochromes and the relationship to the uh, circadian rhythm because it's a, it's an interesting topic, something that uh, I think Gabby can share a little bit more about. Yeah, the cryptochromes in our bloodstream can pick up the blue spectrum of light and um, through our skin, yes. And um, that light can disrupt the circadian rhythm and it can also produce, you know, keep pathological bacteria thriving in the gut. That's because um, we secrete melatonin uh, through the night in total darkness. And melatonin, uh, which is produced mainly by the pineal gland, it helps uh, regulate our body's circadian rhythm. Melatonin is inhibited by light, and um, artificial light is its worst enemy. The blue light spectrum, you know, which is very popularly used in computers, televisions, mobile phones, it's uh, very energy efficient. That's why there's blue lights everywhere. So melatonin is particularly susceptible to blue light. And they did a, I have a quote here from the book Lights Out, which is written by anthropologist uh, Teresa Willey. And she quotes a study where there was a fiber optic cable behind the knee of a person and illuminated a patch of skin no bigger than the size of a quarter and it affected melatonin secretion. So this person was otherwise in complete darkness, and um, through the cryptochromes, you know, perceiving the blue light behind the knee, uh, this person's circadian rhythm was disrupted. So this goes to show how wearing night eye covers simply not do. So these are my notes yeah, on cryptochromes related to melatonin and circadian rhythm. Yeah, yeah so it's... it's, it's Sorry, what, what, was on, the last name, what was the last name of that author again? Can you, uh, can you spell that? Yes, it's uh, W-I-L-E-Y. Okay. Yeah, she's an anthropologist. She published this book, Light Out, and uh, she quotes all the research which shows pretty much how the population, the worldwide population's health deteriorated when electricity came in. So now we're being even microwaved a little bit more, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So if, if anybody wants to um, learn more about this electromagnetic radiation in your house, there's an article on SOT with the same name. And there's some links to some other articles on there as well that we've carried. Um, some of them are uh, cell phones, EMF negativity, altering important regions of the brain. Um, the Bioinitiative Report uh, talks about the dangerous health impacts of microwave radiation. 
And then new study, 30 minutes exposure to 4G cell phone radiation affects your brain activity, and also how the telecom industry seeks to confuse about the dangers of cell phones. So this documentary resonance, it's, it's about an hour and a half, and it, it talks a lot about the effects of bee on bees and birds with some frightening numbers about the disappearance of, of the bees, you know, this and, and the... Um, they say, uh, according to the film's research, four species of American bees decreased in numbers by 98%. So, mm. you know, there's definitely something to this cell phone technology. It's artificial frequencies that we're submersed in, and I really do think it's affecting people's brains uh, on a massive yeah. level. Yeah. And this kind of begs the question. I know there's the issue that cell phones are so convenient. You can use them for emergencies and get on the Internet and surf and all that. And then there's also the added element of all the money that these cell phone companies are making. But call me a conspiracy nut, if you will, but sometimes I wonder if there's a, a underlying reason why all these cell phone tires are springing up like as if um, – somebody or something on purpose wants our frequencies to be jammed. Yeah. Sure. I'm frightened by all these applications where people can measure how many steps they walk through the day and, you know, mm -hmm. your pulse and, you know, and all that all connected with the cell phone. I'm just freaked out by it, <laughs> by the whole concept, you know. Yeah, and the real concern too is children. They they talk about in the in the movie, like you know, they did all these supposed health tests and whatnot, and they found that you know, and of course they're all sponsored by the cell phone industry, that you know it doesn't affect the human brain the way that we think. But all the studies have only been done on human brains, which are much larger and have a thicker skull, and. I personally have seen, you know, children as young as seven and eight years old with their own cell phone. And now with these tablets, with Wi-Fi and all this, I mean, children are on these things for hours a day. And what are the health implications of that? Not to mention uh, the cryptochromes that Gabby was talking about, the disruption of sleep. People are suffering from insomnia. I mean, it's just really frightening. You work in an office where it's all Wi-Fi in a city, and you're completely immersed in this radia radiation, you know, frequency that you can't see. So people figure, oh, like you said, well, it's it's good to have a cell phone you can contact, but what are the long-term implications of exposure to this 24 hours a day, seven days a week? Yeah, not only yeah. the phones themselves, but... Um... I'll have to find the source on this, but <clears throat> I remember reading at one point that the uh, the Bluetooth headsets that are that have become much more popular actually magnify the signal by about three hundred percent, and so mm. um, people are people are wearing that in their ear, you know, on a daily basis. Um, yes, it's, it's, uh, it doesn't bode well. Um, I just wanted to insert really quick too, if uh, if anybody is doubtful of the dangers of uh, microwave radiation, uh, I'd encourage you to look into um, a man named Roger Tolces, T-O-L-C-E-S. Um, he was a guest on, uh, on Art Gall many years ago on Coast to Coast AM in 2003, 
Uh, if you're curious, it was Sunday, November 16th, 2003 was the episode called Electronic Violations. And um, I just looked it up here because I remember listening to that. And uh, <clears throat> at, at that time, you know, that was, what is that now? 12 years ago. Um, he was talking about, he's a private investigator and uh, would um, investigate what he called electronic harassment. And people would report becoming sick, feeling crazy, things like that. And once he actually looked into the situation, found out that um, they were being harassed by other people who had vendettas or various reasons to harass someone for whatever reason, uh, that they were actually making homemade microwave weapons out of, out of an actual microwave. Um, converting the units so that they could they could douse a person with microwave radiation and, and actually make them sick um, over time. So and this could be done from you know just less than a hundred yards away. Um, and that, like I said, that was 12 years ago, and it was actually uh, quite widespread at the time. Um, so imagining what you know what else is is capable people are capable of now with the advanced technology that we have, um, you know. So I, I have heard people that say, you know, well, microwaves are safe and microwave radiation is just fine. You know, nobody's getting sick because of cell towers and, and that kind of thing. But, you know, you don't you don't have to pass out when you walk past a cell tower to know uh, by looking at the data that it's dangerous. It doesn't have to be immediately evident. Um, the problem with these things are that they're cumulative over time. Um, so that was just my quick point. If anybody's curious, look up Roger Tulsa's He has a lot of really interesting information about that. Yeah, because in the video they they uh, address um, you know what's called electromagnetic sensitivity, and you know it's not mm -hmm. something where you're exposed to a cell phone and in five minutes you start vomiting. You know, for a lot yeah. of people, it's slow exposure and. Um, in, in the video, they were talking about how a lot of this start, stuff starts in your head. So it's like pains in the head and not like a headache necessarily, but a different sort of a head pain, um, insomnia, vertigo, um, paresthesia even, you know, the tingling of extremities. And then it, mm -hmm. it, people have even reported gut pains like, like uh, Gabby mentioned. And so... Um, one doctor said it it affects endocrine and thyroid function. So it's something that's happening on a very subtle level, and maybe people are attributing these headaches or vertigo or insomnia to things like stress or emotional trials and tribulations. But it seems like there's definitely something to this electromagnetic sensitivity. I mean, do any of sure. you folks find that where you're in a in a space where there's obviously a lot of Wi-Fi around and you just feel discombobulated or you get these sharp pains in your head and um, maybe even nausea or discomfort? Yeah. Well, not personally, but uh, I have an aunt who's very electrosensitive. She can't even be in the room with the television. Uh, cell phones, if someone uses a cell phone around her, it makes her sick. She can't be around Wi-Fi without getting sick. But uh, I watched a bit of that video yesterday, and there was some people out there who basically had to make their whole house or rooms in their house basically like a Faraday cage just to block out all the EMF just so they could function. 
Exactly. And in that video, they do have like um, what they call cancer clusters that are centered around Mm -hmm. um, towers that the video was made in the UK. And so they had, uh, you know, interviews with people who lived in a village and they put up a cell tower. And I think it was like up to 70% of the people that lived in that area started to have some sort of illness, whether it was breast cancer or sickness, you know, gut issues. So there's definitely something to it. It's it's really frightening. And the sad part about it is if you make the personal decision to give up your cell phone, if you have the intestinal fortitude to do so in this day and age, there's still all the cell phone towers yeah. that are out that can still get you and all the Wi-Fi everywhere. So even if you don't have your own personal cell phone, there still seems to be kind of you're cornered. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, especially if you're in a, a city or a metro area. I mean, I, even I, I live in a fairly rural area, and, um, you know, when I look at the, the Wi-Fi networks, there are uh, seven to eight around me. Um, mm-hmm. But when I visited friends of mine in the city, there are you know, upwards of 20 to 30 available Wi-Fi networks um, at any given mm-hmm. point, if not even more than that. Um so it's just around, even if you do disconnect your Wi-Fi and, and try to directly cable in uh, to the Internet with an Ethernet cable, um, you're still susceptible. It's still pretty much everywhere. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, even the EPA has come out and stated that at very high levels, radio frequency energy is dangerous, and it basically can heat the body's tissues rapidly. And they use the metaphor of, you know, when you put a – piece of meat in the microwave and you turn it on that's basically what's happening so is that what's happening to our brain that's very graphic (laughs) (laughs) maybe the point will be made there (laughs) yes that's a very good point (laughs) so what can we do move out into the country where the wi-fi and the cell phone towers are a little bit less I think they make this special um, mesh kind of wire that you can put around your house. Uh, I guess you can put a tinfoil hat on or sleep in silk underpants <laughs> yeah. to kind of shield yourself. Well, you, yeah, but- you could build a, you could do the Faraday cage thing in your room, but unfortunately, copper is quite expensive these days, so you know, it's yeah. hard to do. Or you can just hang out in your underground bunker like that study was done, and which but then you have no sort of <laughs> no none of the um, Schumann residents either. So you know you're you're yeah. going to get sick. And <laughs> well, I think this touches on a really important point, which is that um, it's uh, it's important first of all to understand these things, um, to know what the various influences are on our minds, on our bodies. Um, you know, ambient radiation, um, nuclear radiation, which is everywhere as well. And we'll talk about that in a future show. But um, uh, diet, uh, you know, and just the, uh, I guess I'm trying to say, um, all of these negative influences on our state of kind of holistic well-being, um, it's, it's important, first of all, to understand them. And second of all, to know what you can do to combat those things to a certain point. Um, you know, if you're going to live in the world and have a job, you know, you can't be an agoraphobic. You have to go outside. Um, <clears throat> you have to interact with people. Uh, if you're in a city, you know, you're going to have to drive through the city. 
So all of these things are exposures that to a certain extent we can't avoid unless you can afford to move to the mountains in Montana or something similar. Um, and so understanding the, um, ways to interpret your own thoughts, you know, to understand when you are having anxiety or depression, where it's coming from, uh, when you're feeling sick, where it's coming from, um, certain natural things that you can do <clears throat> to combat that, like a proper diet, like uh, getting more supplements, getting vitamin C, things like that. Um, and, and being, I think, to a certain extent, comfortable with the fact that these things exist um, because, you know, you, you can go the uh, the 100% tinfoil hat, be somebody who's constantly racked with crippling anxiety and paranoid about everything around them, but then you're not very effective in the world um, or in your own mm -hmm. life. And so you need to understand how to uh, how to operate with a modicum of um, foresight and, uh, I guess, responsibility about what you're doing and what you're taking in and also um, just being okay with the fact that there are so many negative things around you and not freaking out about it all the time. I guess if that makes sense. Excellent point, Jonathan. Just do as many positive things as you can to kind of negate the negative effects. Exactly. I mean, I, you know, I, it's not, uh, surprising to feel like you want to uh, to run away from it all. I, I feel that way sometimes too. Like, okay, I'm going to forget mm -hmm. work and I'm just going to go fishing for a week and everybody can leave me alone, you know, <laughs> but you can't, you can't operate that way because then you're not bringing in any resources to continue your life or to help other people. So there has to be a balance. Right. Um, well, on that note, talking about balance, um, Gabby, you have some information about uh, good sleep. Um, and I know we talked a little bit about <clears throat> blue light and melatonin. And if I could insert really quick, I had thought about that while you were bringing that up. Um, David Asprey, who is uh, more commonly known as the bulletproof coffee guy, even though that's not his only area, um, but he's got a lot of really interesting information. Um, he does talk a lot about the high fat diet, about ketosis and about natural holistic ways of living. Uh, that reminded me that in one of his interviews, he talks about wearing red tinted glasses in the evening. And as soon as the sun goes down in his house, he puts on these essentially what look like red sunglasses. And that is to uh, block out the blue light so that his melatonin levels can balance out before he goes to sleep. And he also tapes um, with black electrical tape all of the little blue LED lights that are on the various computers and things around the house. Um, so I thought that was kind of an interesting bit of information. Um, that if you can't avoid artificial light in the evening, you can actually wear these red tinted glasses to avoid that negative influence. But, um, so I just wanted to bring that up. But Gabby, go ahead with, with your information there. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. And that's the good news, in a sense. Uh, we could, what we could do, we, we can actually sleep well. <laughs> it's possible. There is yeah. evidence that depression, obesity, heart disease, and cancer can be prevented in many cases by sleeping well and turning the lights off. This is to quote the research of the book Lights Out, which somebody posted the link on the chat room by Teresa Willey. And uh, that's mainly thanks to melatonin, you know. Um, melatonin helps to, to regulate our circadian rhythm. It also regulates other hormones. 
it, it has a powerful antioxidant activity, and um, it is also, you know, it's been researched in cancer, you know, for to inhibit growth of brain cancer. There's a lot of excellent research in melatonin, you know. If you have low melatonin levels, it leaves you susceptible to inflammation, aging, depression, you know. People have um, lower immune function, less antioxidant activity, and uh, they also tend to have leaky gut, you know. They have uh, unhealthy balances in gut bacteria. So, yeah, melatonin is very vulnerable to blue light, to artificial light. You know, even light exposure to an overhead fluorescent fixture can delay melatonin production and sleep by up to two hours, you know. And um, there's, uh, that's why it is important, you know, that the hour before you go to bed should be a no electric zone, you know. Even the burst of light from a phone, even just to check the time, you know, it can break your sleep cycle, you know, and this is based on research and experience personal and other people, of course. <laughs> then um, um, then I mentioned earlier uh, about the cryptochromes, you know, the importance of sleeping in total darkness. Because even when you cannot see the light, if your skin senses blue light, uh, it will disrupt your melatonin secretion as well. So your room should be absolutely dark, and even if you cannot see the light, you know you have to make sure to to get rid of all electronics and small sources of light here and there. Uh, so yes, I'll go through some tips, you know, uh, or sleeping in total darkness is the one. Uh, keeping your temperature in your bedroom no higher than 70 degrees Fahrenheit is also a good idea to enhance uh, sleepiness. It is also based on research, and uh, it's, it, it is thought because when you sleep, your body uh, temperature drops, so that's why it might, it might be more conducive. Remove electromagnetic fields as best as possible, you know. And uh, if you have an alarm clock or other electrical devices, just keep them away from your bed, you know. Have a night table, you know, in front or, or on, the, on the last corner of your bedroom, you know. And uh, always reserve your bed for sleeping. That is, if you cannot fall asleep within 10 minutes, it's best to get out of bed, out of the room, read by candlelight or do something else. And when you feel sleepy, you can go back to bed and try again. If you, if you don't fall asleep, get out again. Sometimes it's a matter of discipline. You can be like that if you have insomnia. You can go through this ritual all through the night, but you will eventually fall asleep. And then the next day, just don't take a nap. You just have to soldier in all through the day until night, and then you might you will fall asleep, you know, earlier. These are just a few tricks. It's really very important to have a good night's sleep because, as we have seen, we're exposed to all kind of unseen toxic waste, and sleeping can really help you restore because it promotes uh, the secretion of growth hormone, which rejuvenates you, and melatonin, which is which also has um restorative uh, healing effect in your body. And chronic sleep loss can actually cause uh, toxic molecules in your bloodstream to be transported to the brain because um, chronic sleep loss produces leaky brain. You know, the blood-brain uh, blood barrier begins to, to degrade and it 
becomes leaky, you know, and all the toxic stuff goes into your brain. So that's the other thing. And lack of sleep also, you know, it just makes you psychotic. And I can attest to this. <laughs> there is research, you know, <laughs> because I do, <laughs> I do 24 hour shifts. So I was like, you know, um, you know, when I read this article, I forgot its name, but it's actually the the research shows that 24 hours of sleep deprivation leads to conditions in healthy persons uh, similar to the symptoms of schizophrenia or psychosis. You know, I have always this in mind when I finish my 24-hour shift, I've got to go to bed. I'm psychotic. I'm psychotic. <laughs> yeah. Great. I can attest to that. I can attest to that too. Uh, when when yeah. I was in college, this is a, a little bit embarrassing, but I'll go ahead and say it. Uh, when I was in college, we uh, some friends of mine and I did an experiment. Now I do not recommend that anybody try this, but uh, you know, at the time I didn't know, you know, up from down or, or left from right, and so we were um, we were trying to see how long we could stay awake, and basically over caffeinated and um, stayed awake for. I think it was almost 72 hours and actually started to hallucinate. Um, yeah. wow. it was, That's it was pretty, for you. <laughs> pretty crazy. So, yeah, I can, I can attest to that as well. Even just in, in cases where um, sometimes my job requires, um, you know, late nights or, you know, at times uh, I have to pull an pull in all-nighter to hit a deadline for the next day and that kind of thing. And it, without fail, every time I, I feel down, um, really anxious, depressed, or get sick, you know, and it's the lack of sleep is, is really damaging. Yeah. Yeah, I've noticed even if I'm short a few hours on sleep, I kind of feel fuzzy-headed the whole rest of the day. I'm forgetful. I drop stuff. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing, basically. So even with a few hours of sleep deprivation, it's all over for me. But um, when the lights go down, I tend to just fall asleep. I don't care where I am. My friends can attest to this. I'm notorious for falling asleep at night during movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I take the night shifts really bad, really. Like uh, the day after, I'm depressed. You know, it's really hard to do anything. So I really literally, even if I'm not sleepy, I literally force myself to go to bed or lay there in the total darkness, you know, meditate, and I eventually fall asleep. And then when I sleep well, I'm suddenly like a different person, you know, like recover my senses. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, what was that? Yeah. Yeah, and we see these issues coming up more and more. I mean, people are really complaining about the lack of ability to fall asleep at night and, you know, how how do how do we as people that are trying to get information out there help those people, you know? I mean, we can see from the information about cell phones that that's probably part of it, you know, but then also mm-hmm. stress and, um, you know, your job is, working 90 hours a week and and whatnot. And there's also the the issue of eating too many carbs. I know when I was a carb addict, I would wake up in the middle of the night every night around 2 o'clock a.m. and wouldn't be able to go to sleep for a few hours. And uh, there's actually research that shows if you um, are eating carbs, 
Um, sometimes in the middle of the night, your blood sugar can drop and that can wake you up. So once I started low-carb or keto, my sleep got a lot better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for people who even have sugar spikes through the night, it's better mm-hmm. to have a high-protein meal, you know, uh, ideally not to eat, you know, two hours before going to bed or ideally not after 8, eight, uh, eight o'clock p.m. But if you mm-hmm. should have a snack, probably the best is uh, something fatty with protein. You know. Also avoid coffee, caffeine, dark chocolate in the night. It keeps you awake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very few tricks, you know, to have a good night's sleep. It's the one thing that can really restore your health, you know. It happens in the night while you sleep. Well, Gabby, Gabby, did you want to... Oh, go ahead, Erica. Sorry. Oh, I was going to ask. One thing they they mentioned, they did a lot of research in that Frequency um, movie about melatonin. Basically, it can sweep up free radicals in your body when you sleep. Is that... Have you read that in the research? Yes. yes. Melatonin is considered one of the most powerful uh, antioxidants. It's been used even in radiation research, you know, radiation from medical tests or even Chernobyl or Fukushima. It's also research uh, in cancer for, for its antioxidant properties. It's really, really good stuff. You know, and people who have a hard time falling asleep, they can try with a little bit of melatonin. They sell it, you know, in herbal shops, in the bio store, in organic shops. And um, they sell very high doses. We were discussing this the other day. But ideally, you should begin with the lowest dose possible and just, you know, have it when you absolutely need it. You know, 0.25 milligrams or 0.5 milligrams, you start with that and you make, you, you will your dose up if you need it. Just start with the lowest dose because, you know, it can trigger, you know, very vivid dreams and people can have uh, some time, a hard time adjusting to it. Yeah, yeah I, <clears throat> I noticed that too. I, I wasn't aware of the dosage when I started taking melatonin as a supplement. And uh, so I was like, oh, you know, three milligram capsules, I'll just go ahead and take those. And the dreams are insane. Yeah. <laughs> People report having very vivid dreams when they first sleep in a complete dark room as well because, uh, yeah. you know, from our culture, you know, there's always an electronic device or a little light coming through the window. And when they first sleep in a complete dark room, they have more vivid dreams. That's thanks to melatonin, you know, it gets secreted. It's enhanced with total darkness. We have a uh, we have a question here from the chat, uh, Gabby. If you want to speak to this, um, someone asked, "What about magnesium supplements before bedtime?" Yes, magnesium supplements. You know, magnesium is the relaxing mineral par excellence. So yes, having some magnesium before going to bed does help. In very rare cases, people have reported being more awake. I think that could be related to detoxifying. Uh, reactions, you know, detox reactions from the magnesium maybe, but mm-hmm. for the most part, you know, it's relaxing and it helps you, you know, ease up through the night. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <clears throat> we have a, another question here too. Um, they're popping up about melatonin. Um, 
first of all, what, what's the difference um, between uh, a melatonin supplement and naturally produced melatonin? Is there a vast difference there? Um, you know, should, yeah. would you want to try? Would you want to try to naturally produce melatonin before you start supplementing, or vice versa? Yes, and there there's a lot of researchers actually who are against melatonin supplementation because they believe that it should all be naturally produced, that we will like um have an artificial, you know, break the cycle artificially. And I think that with perspective, yes, we should all make efforts to 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 properly enhance our natural melatonin production with total darkness like the dark goggles that you mentioned from this guy of uh, the website. And uh, just having, you know, you know, uh, making changes here and there, you know, avoiding electricity before an hour before going to bed. But um, realistically, a lot of people are having a lot of trouble falling asleep, and it is very important if they're going to heal from their autoimmune disease or whatever condition they're dealing with. I think in those cases, before, especially before trying prescription medicine, they should definitely try with melatonin supplements. You know, there are sublingual versions which get more absorbed, you know, and more effectively absorbed, and they could try that starting with the lowest dose and building up, you know, because even if you do everything properly diet-wise and, you know, you meditate, do you exercise, if you're not having a good night's sleep, you're not going to recover your health. <laughs> That's about it, yeah. yeah. Speaking of meditation, let's talk for a little bit about areolus and uh, proper breathing. Now, I realize we could uh, we could do an entire show on, on areolus, on the research behind it, on the vast um, benefits um, that come from uh, a proper controlled breathing practice, but... Uh, Gabby, can you speak to that a little bit? Um, maybe just do a quick overview of, of what is the Areolus program and, um, and and what are the, the kind of basic benefits that you receive from this? Yeah, um, Areolus, yes. It's our favorite program for stress relief. And stress, you know, especially this week on Sub.net, we published an article titled Heal Your Thyroid by Getting Out of Adrenal Survival Mode. And it is a very good review of why stress is so harmful for our health, you know. Even if we think we don't have it, I think it's kind of safe to assume that everybody has it on a constant basis. And uh, it highlights the importance of dealing with stress in effective ways, you know. When the nervous system is in flight or, uh, in flight or fight response, it affects all the hormones of your body. And uh, it does it by by affecting the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Just just a big name to explain that you know your brain is connected with all your hormones through your adrenals. You know, and we when you're in such when you're under prolonged chronic stress, your adrenal system just tells your body to conserve energy rather than to spend too much energy. You know, so your thyroid slows down. You know, and and then we have problems of chronic fatigue, you know, and uh, people who who are in this barely surviving mode, they have difficulty falling asleep as well. They have poor sleep. They get sick a lot. They're anxious. They crave sugar, caffeine. They have poor mental function, and they have hypothyroidism as well. 
So, yes, the importance of areolas is basically, you know, we do have a tool to enhance the relaxing system of our body, and that's done through areolas, you know, which combines uh, specific uh, breathing techniques in conjunction with meditation and belly breathing. And it's available for free at eebreathe.com. And um, I think it's very fascinating because it also enhances our natural levels of everything we've been talking right now, like melatonin. You know, you start doing areolas and you have increased uh, secretion of melatonin. Also, of, your, of our natural volume, which is GABA, GABA butyric acid, and our happy mood, you know, uh, neurotransmitter, which is serotonin. It reduces stress hormones, and uh, what it does, areolas, it stimulates the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is the heart of our relaxing system, which is also called the parasympathetic system. The vagus nerve uses acetylcholine. It's another brain chemical. Uh, which helps reduce inflammation in our bodies. It also, you know, helps us uh, or has a very important role in learning, thinking, and engaging, you know, our higher levels of brain function, our higher cognitive functions, you know, like the captain of our brain. And that helps us regulate, you know, our reptilian reactions, uh, fight or flight, or primitive emotions involving fight or flight, you know. So it also helps us engage in pro-social and empathetic emotions. And I, you know, I stress the importance of stimulating this relaxing system with because we can really do it through breathing exercises. Like no matter how, you know, stressed we are, how like lost we are, if we start doing controlled breathing techniques along with meditation, we could align everything I just mentioned, you know, anti-inflammation, melatonin, GABA, serotonin, and it will help you, you know, um, enhance a relaxed state of vigilance, mental focus, and heightened awareness, you know. So it's really an amazing tool for stress relief, but also for any other alternative therapy a person goes through, like rehabilitation, psychotherapy, because if it helps you engage your higher cognitive functions, you know, you can process emotions from, you know, hidden trauma or stressful situations much more effectively. And uh, my favorite part of areolas, and I think a lot for a lot of people too, is the prayer, the prayer of the soul, you know. It's very, this is what makes areolas uh, a unique meditation program because it has this, uh, this meditation technique, which is a seed, which it, it, it has like the role of sprouting new life from within, you know, that's how I will call it. It's like very soul healing because it has open-ended, you know, affirmations. And uh, so it allows, you know, from an open-ended point of view to sprout, you know, our unique potential without our preconceived notions, you know, that might restrict actually our progress, you know, sometimes we don't know what is best for us. So, yes, that's absolute favorite technique for stress relief areolas. Certainly. Um, like Gabby said, if anybody wants more information on that, you can go to eebreathe.com. Uh, and I believe the entire program is available there for free. Um, so it's, it's quite a service uh, 
to the to the world to pre- present that information for free and the actual practice itself when there are so many um well i guess there's <laughs> gurus and, and charlatans and you know snake oil salesmen and stuff who are offering their their own stress relief programs for a hundred dollars or five hundred dollars or monthly fees and things like that areolis is is a heavily researched widely practiced program that's offered uh completely for free and if you do want to uh support uh the people that have uh that have started this program you can buy the dvds uh or make a donation on the site so yeah practicing areolis like you know before you go to bed that will naturally enhance your melatonin production as well in the dark room you know Talk about some vivid dreams, <laughs> working through your stress <laughs> and emotions through the night naturally, yeah. you know, in a stress-relieving way. <laughs> and really, it's a lifesaver to... in the sense that um, it gives people a tool. So if yeah. you're in a stressful situation, you have to make a presentation or have a big interview. The um, three-stage pipe breathing and the belly breath that um, Gabby mentioned just spending a few minutes before your, you know, stressful presentation or whatnot really helps calm you down and, and give you the confidence because, you, you know, you 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 can breathe and relax into it. And um, I personally, it's really changed my life in so many ways. And um, I, I just really recommend it because it's something that you can apply in all situations, you know, whether it's driving on the freeway or somebody's in your face, you know, upset and, you know, you just remember to breathe in through the nose, out through the mouth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I do it, I practice areolas also when I do exercise, when I do martial arts. And uh, now my doubt is if I find it so therapeutic because I'm doing areolas or because I'm doing exercise, <laughs> maybe <it's> both. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that leads us nicely into the topic of uh, <clears throat> exercise. Tiffany had some information she was going to share with us about that. Do you want to go through that for a little bit? Yeah, sure. More good news or positive things you can do to decrease your stress and improve your health. Um, so everybody has heard that exercise is good for them, but um, there's actually some deeper benefits to exercise. Uh, it can activate some genes and deactivate other genes. So when your genes are turned on, they express proteins that prompt physiological responses elsewhere in the body. Um, Genetic expression isn't written in stones. Genes are not destiny. Um, Genes can be altered by influences coming from outside of the gene. Um, The operation of the gene is altered, but the DNA blueprint remains the same. And how this works is that there's clusters of atoms called methyl groups, and they attach to the outside of your genes, and they make the gene more or less able to receive and respond to biochemical signals from the body. So uh, exercise can induce immediate changes in the methylation patterns of genes in your muscle cells. There was a study uh, in 2012 in the uh, journal Cell Metabolism, And in this study, they showed that vigorous exercise, even very brief vigorous exercise, causes structural and chemical changes in the muscle DNA um, when your muscle contracts. 
And the study also suggested that exercise causes the genetic activation that increases the production of fat-busting proteins. And also uh, resistance training minimizes and even reverses mitochondrial dysfunction. So what type of exercise are we talking about here? Um, there's uh, endurance training like um, jogging, going for a run, speed walking, cycling, or there is high-intensity exercise. But uh, even regular endurance exercise, as long as it's not too much, because too much endurance cardio can actually be damaging to you. Um, but even regular exercise has benefits, such as increasing insulin sensitivity and normalizing blood glu glucose levels. Um, but if you're doing prolonged, vigorous endurance exercise, uh, it can damage your heart over the years because it stresses it and it disrupts muscle fibers and causes micro tears that can cause permanent damage. So I'm sure a lot of people have seen these marathon runners that kind of bonk out or hit the wall or they're uh, shown on TV with like diarrhea running down their shorts and they just collapse or maybe have a heart attack on the while they're doing the marathon. So that's probably an, that's probably an effect of prolonged chronic cardio that's that's not really good for you so um the problem with this endurance exercise is that it uh, stresses your adrenals and it puts you into this fight or flight mode uh, it burns you out it causes a lot of joint problems uh, and these people who are running these marathons are running long distances you know day in and day out um, they have high CPK levels, which is creatine phosphokinase. Um, and these are markers of muscle damage. And they use these in you know, hospitals and ERs to detect if you've had a heart attack or not. So um, distance runners have high CPK levels. And uh, excess aerobic exercise uh, can also cause overtraining and muscle wasting, which is actually defeating the purpose because a lot of people exercise in order to lose weight or to lose fat. But if you're overdoing it, it can lead to a reduction in fat burning. So on the other side of the spectrum, we have high-intensity interval training, and this is more efficient and it's more effective at producing positive results. Um, high-intensity interval training increases myokines, which are anti-inflammatory proteins produced by muscle fibers. So you can do high-intensity interval training as cardio, um, where you do short speeds, short bursts of uh, speed at full tilt uh, for about 30 seconds to one minute, followed by a complete recovery period. And there's um, also another form of high-intensity interval training, which is uh, strength training or um, lifting weights. Um, uh, there's a certain type that's advocated by uh, Dr. Doug McGuff. He wrote a book called Body by Science, and he advocates super slow strength training where you lift and lower the weights very, very slowly, like maybe you can use up to 10 seconds to lift the weight and then 10 seconds to lower the weight. But that can be a topic for another show. It's just a really effective way to actually turn on the DNA and turn on the mitochondria in your muscle. Um, 
So check out that book, Body by Science. Um, there's also a lot of YouTube videos on that. But um, just in general, like if you're going to exercise, and you can take a walk for 20 minutes a day. You can do some weight training. Um, the benefits are uh, increased blood flow to the brain, growth of new brain cells. And I know that I have noticed, like if I exercise, I'm um, better able to focus after our workout. Um, exercise preserves both gray and white matter in the brain. Um, I know that in Alzheimer's or dementia patients, they do if they do an um, MRI on their brains, they notice that they've lost gray and white matter. Basically, their brain has shrunk. So exercise has been shown to preserve gray and white matter in your brain. Um, exercise is so good for decreasing depression because it triggers endorphins, uh, serotonin, dopamine. Um, these all play an important role in mood control. Um, exercise also reduces plaque formation, and this is what's found in Alzheimer's also. And it increases BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor, and that preserves existing brain cells and it activates new neurons. So exercise can help you think. So if you're going to do any exercise and you want to get the most bang for your buck, try the high-intensity interval training versus going on a prolonged endurance cardio jog. So exercise, folks. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of all these stories of young people falling dead while they were running marathon, you know. Yeah. Abnormal. Yeah. Well, this is the the writer of the... um, the, the Runner's Bible, that was not the name of the book. I think it was The Complete Guide to Running, who died of a heart attack uh-huh. uh, while he was running. And not to speak ill of the dead, of course, but, uh, you know, yeah. it, I believe it was shown uh, after his death that he had some uh, congenital defects, and they tried to blame it on the fact that he had smoked earlier in life. Um, but he mm-hmm. had been smoke-free for something like, I don't know, 20 years? Um, oh, that's a lot. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and exercising outside, you know, getting mm-hmm. like we were talking about earlier, this connection with the the earth, you know, um, going on nature walks and um, mm. spending at least twenty minutes. I mean, there's a quite a few articles on thought about it. Nature walks improve your mental well-being and lower stress and. De- depression or the effect of nature on the human mind, like just getting outside and uh, starting a a little walk and then making a habit of it and, and practicing Mm -hmm. your breathing while you're walking. Yeah. Well, it's uh, actually hugging a tree. tree It was pretty fun. Yeah, it's too bad the word tree huggers has gotten a bad rap. It can be very grounding. like to climb trees so much. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I loved to climb trees when I was a kid. (laughs) Oh, me too. Sure. But before we talk about uh, earthing and grounding a little bit, let's let's go over um, uh, hydration and, uh, you know, drinking water. And that's... uh, 
you know, it's obviously it's common knowledge that drinking water is, is good for you, drinking the right kind of water and, and the right amount. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, well, the generally uh, uh, recommended amount of water to drink, uh, see it different places. People have different recommendations, like six to eight glasses of water a day. But uh, in the Keto Adapted book by Maria Emmerich, I think she advocates to drink your body weight in ounces of water. So if you weigh 150 pounds, you should drink 150 ounces of water per day. Wow, that's in pounds and not kilograms, eh? Yeah. That's what I think, unless I'm wrong. I I think it's half your body weight in ounces. Half your body weight? I think okay. it's one half your body weight in ounces, if if I remember reading that correctly. Yes, I think Which it's half your body weight. That would be about about your body weight in kilograms, right? A, a kilogram is 2.2 pounds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, the That's bottom line is it's important to, to remain properly hydrated. Yeah. Um, since your body is mostly made of water and your, your cells are in water and it needs water to actually be able to send chemical signals back and forth. Um, so tap water, I think it's pretty well established that tap water is fairly yucky. Um, there's pharmaceutical drugs found in it, the fluoride, chlorine, radioactive contaminants, uh, hexavalent, chromium, lead, aluminum, heavy metals, arsenic. So you don't want to be drinking tap water. You want to drink um, filtered or purified water. So um, there's a lot of uh, filtration techniques like um, sand filtration, which filters out the big pieces of stuff found in whatever water source you're using, like a a river or a lake or something like that. Um, There's flocculation, which is chemicals added to the water to get the smaller particles to coagulate and float so they can be removed. And then after that, they'll add some chlorine to kill bacteria and microorganisms. But that's not really the best because it can leave an aftertaste. And a lot of people don't drink tap water because it tastes bad. It tastes of chlorine. Um, But um, there's EPA standards for how clean drinking water has to be. But these... Your water is constantly changing. The quality of it is constantly changing depending on the time of the year and what's in the environment and what filters down into your water source. So if you want the best water, you want to get some purified water, which is water that's subjected to some kind of filtration, and then it undergoes additional purification processes, like if you have a reverse osmosis filter on your tap or if you distill your water. So a definition of good water is if there's 10 parts per million or less of dissolved solids. But then there's also spring water. And sometimes I think people can overestimate the quality of their spring water because it's exposed to the elements just like rivers and lakes and that. So depending on your source, I mean, you can have an actually good source of spring water. Um, it can be a lot better than tap water. And then um, there's distilled water, 
which is where the the water is boiled out of the contam out of the contaminants and it's turned to steam and the steam is collected and you drink that. But uh, there's one problem with this is that there's some contaminants that have higher boiling points than the boiling point point of water. So you want to put your water, your distilled water, through an additional purification method. And I found that distilled water tastes best to me. And uh, reverse osmosis water is also good. But tap water, I haven't drunk that for years. It's just disgusting. And you can see, like, when you use a distiller and there's all this residue that builds up at the bottom of the distiller that you have to clean out with citric acid every once in a while, imagine drinking that. Yeah. Well, I don't know if other people have the same experience, but uh, a friend of mine has a um, uh, gravity-fed filter, and uh, the top part of the filter smells like a swimming pool because of the chlorine that gets caught mm. up in there. It's it's amazing yeah. how much is really in there. And I, that was a good point mm. about um, making sure that your spring-fed water is, is clean. If you are getting water from the spring, uh, that's what we mm-hmm. do. Uh, there's an artesian well nearby, um, <clears throat> but we did actually get to look at the test results to make sure that the water was clean, and I think it's important uh, to have that done. So spend, you know, the 50 or 100 bucks, uh, whatever it costs, to uh, to have a test run on your spring-fed water and make sure that it's all right. Mm-hmm. I've also noticed that I'm a little bit less thirsty once I started the low-carb or ketogenic diet. Because before yeah, sure. I could drink glass after glass after glass of water and never, never feel like I was quenched. It's also important to, uh, I mean, we've talked about this in the past show, I think during our ketosis show, um, but it's important to stay well mineralized um, because mm-hmm. the minerals help to retain that water within your body in the, in the proper way so that you are hydrated. If you're low on on basic minerals, um, you become dehydrated very easily. So, uh, yeah, you can is, you can add a dash of uh, real salt or Celtic sea salt or Himalayan salt to your water to kind of yep. mineralize it. Yeah. Yep. I do that myself. Um, oftentimes, if I if I feel a snack craving, I'll add a little pinch of salt to a glass of water, real salt, and then have that, and mm-hmm. it goes away. Also, the bone broth should be very helpful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I guess the, uh, the the next topic that we wanted to cover just briefly here um, is uh, earthing. And we, that's come up a few times over the course of our conversation. And if anybody is not familiar, uh, earthing is uh, is becoming a little bit more of a popular term, earthing or grounding. Um, and it's a lot of people, I think, do this naturally. Um, you know, if you live in an area where you're near the woods or not, you know, in the in the heart of a city, uh, is just getting your bare feet uh, in contact with the ground. Um, there are uh, something upwards of 1,300 nerve endings per square inch in the bottom of your feet, and uh, so there's evidence now coming out. I mean, <clears throat> you know. They say evidence. Uh, there's, I, I'm, I personally, I'm a firm believer that anecdotal evidence is uh, is just as well as uh, as actual mm-hmm. scientific evidence. But I'm sure a lot of people would disagree with me on that. But uh, 
you know, if you try something and you notice the results, then you've, you've essentially run your own study. And, um, but I, I did find an interesting article here on uh, the National Institutes of Health called Health Implications of Reconnecting the Human Body to the Earth's Surface Electrons. And um, I won't read this whole thing, of course, but they, they just say, uh, like, here's an abstract. Mounting evidence suggests that the Earth's negative potential can create a stable internal bioelectrical environment for the normal functioning of all body systems. Moreover, oscillations of the intensity of the Earth's potential may be important for setting the biological clocks regulating diurnal body rhythms, such as cortisol secretion. And uh, <clears throat> speaking of, of anecdotal evidence, I think, you know, everybody knows that when you, if you have a stressful life, when you get a chance to take a vacation and you're able to swim in the lake or in the ocean or walk on the beach with your bare feet or walk through the woods, um, that you feel better. Uh, you relax, um, you know, your cortisol levels are balanced out, uh, you're able to think more clearly, uh, and you come back to life, you know, feeling much better. Yeah. One way to do this, <clears throat> if you don't get an, an actual chance uh, to do this in your day-to-day -day life, is just to make some time uh, to set up a chair uh, in the yard or in a park and just sit with your bare feet on the ground, even up to 30 minutes a day. Um, can be uh, can have a beneficial effect on your hormone levels, um, on your level of well-being, and even on your uh, white blood cell counts and your platelet counts. Um, there was some interesting uh, results of a a patient of uh, Dr. Tents. I know we've we've mentioned him from time to time. He's a, uh, a chiropractor and a, a homeopath uh, in Michigan, and uh, he had a cancer patient who um, they were able to tell that her platelet count um, returned to normal after she began doing this 30 minutes a day of basically just getting her bare feet in contact with the ground. Um, <clears throat> so it's, it's highly beneficial. And um, I actually noticed uh, the benefits myself um, in, in, the, in the recent past. I had a, uh, a uh, uh, what's called a Herxheimer reaction or an overblown detox reaction to a fungal detox protocol, I basically um, went too far with it and, and caused this uh, uh, crazy kind of overblown detox reaction. It resulted in hives, upset sleep, um, my gut floor was damaged, and uh, that is something I recommend people being very careful with if you're going to do a fungal detox. But I, I was able to feel much better by getting my feet in contact with the ground. Um, able to sleep better and all of these things. Of course, there were other things involved to it. Uh, began supplementing probiotics, and that helped quite a bit. But um, the other thing is, is no joke. And I think it's it's funny that it has to be given a term. You know, it has to be given some kind of a name when really it's just common sense. You know, just get out there, get your mm -hmm. feet in contact with the ground, um, go for a walk, or sit in the yard with a book. Uh, there are other ways to do it. Um, <clears throat> there are actually devices available that you can get um, which will plug into the ground on a three-prong outlet. Um, I'm sure people are familiar with the two-prong versus a three-prong outlet and the, the grounded outlet that has that third prong. Um, you can get some, some devices that plug into a little mat. So in the wintertime, if you're not able to get your feet onto the actual bare ground um, without quite a bit of discomfort, of course, um, you can actually get these devices that plug into the ground in your wall, and then uh, you can put your feet onto that. Um, 
And there are even sheets uh, that, that plug into the ground uh, that you can put on your bed that will ground you out while you're sleeping. Um, but uh, <clears throat> there's an article on SOD about it called Earthing Health Benefits from Being Grounded. And um, this, it talks about the, uh, the positive versus the negative voltage uh, in, in the body versus the earth. So when the body loses contact with the earth, it can carry a positive voltage relative to the earth, um, which can upset these things like the hormonal balance um, in your body. And uh, let's see, there's a, uh, a good little excerpt from this. Uh, during the normal processes of metabolism, the body generates what are called reactive oxygen species, which are commonly referred to as free radicals. These common compounds appear to be important, at least in part because they have the ability to attack and destroy unwanted things within the body, including bacteria and viruses. However, too many free radicals are a bad thing and have been implicated in chronic disease, as well as the very process of aging. Um, and uh, balancing out the charge in your body uh, can um, reduce the level of... Um, so free radicals lack sparks of energy known as electrons. Um, one way to quell them is to give them electrons, and that is what happens in the, in the process of grounding yourself out. So I, I recommend to people to just try it out. As we come into the springtime, mm-hmm. um, it's warming up outside. Um, give it a shot. If you if you notice that throughout your daily life you're not you're keeping your shoes on all the time, um, you're not coming into contact with the ground. Um, just get a chair out in the yard and sit there with your bare feet and read a book and give it a half hour to an hour. And I I think that you'll notice that you feel better, more relaxed over time. Comes back to me. I want to try now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I want to go out and put my feet in the grass. Yeah. yeah. And actually, um, the, this is also largely anecdotal, but uh, there is some some mention of this in the uh, in the National Institutes of Health article as well that um, walking in wet grass uh, with your bare feet uh, can also be beneficial, and uh, it has something to do with the increased uh, conduction uh, capabilities of the water mm-hmm. being in the grass and on the ground. So when you have that conductive layer of, of water between your feet and the ground, you actually get a, a, a more beneficial response. Hmm. So, well, um, let's, uh, we, we're running a little bit short on our time here, um, but we're, we're not quite done yet. So we have Zoya's pet health segment today. So let's go to Zoya for a little while and then we'll come back with our recipe for the day, which, uh, in lieu of the uh, recent holiday Easter that we have had. Now, uh, you may or may not celebrate Easter, but of course, uh, everybody knows that uh, ham is a staple for for Easter. And so we're gonna do a recipe on how to make your own ham out of a pork butt roast. Um, So we'll come back with that after the pet health segment for today. And welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Today we are going to talk um, about benefits of having pets. Uh, there are enormous benefits to animal-human relationships. Uh, for example, they are very beneficial for children with uh, 
developmental problems, uh, elderly, uh, for example, college students may handle stressful situations better if they have a pet. Uh, for example, there are even uh, petting rooms full of puppies in some of universities uh, for students that, that just need to come and unwind a bit. So, but some people worry about allergies or perhaps uh, toxoplasma when it comes to pets. Uh, but any of those concerns, if addressed uh, properly, uh, basically can be handled uh, in a successful way. For example, uh, when it comes to toxoplasmosis, apparently cats excrete uh, toxoplasma cysts in the feces only for two weeks after being infected and after toxoplasma went through developmental stages in the uh, gastrointestinal tract. After that, antibodies are formed and they become immune to infection. So what you can do to, uh, to make sure that your cat isn't going to infect you is to ask your veterinarian to do a typer of toxoplasma antibodies in the blood of your cat. And if they're present, it is safe to handle your cat feces. So coming back to our topic, it's less a question of either having a pet or not, but more about what kind of pet and how to provide the animal with proper living conditions so you both would benefit from long, happy, and fulfilling lives. But there, are, there is also an exception uh, to having a pet issue. And it is particularly relevant now, uh, right now after Easter in the U.S., when many parents give their kids bunnies as presents. Well, as super cute bunnies may be, many people forget that it is up to 10 years long commitment. Yep, bunnies can live that long and more. And just like any animal, they require responsible approach and specific care. So even if it's really beneficial for children to learn how to interact with animals, you should think twice uh, before giving them as a present to you or other children just because it's a holiday season. And what's for sure, pets are much more than a toy. But if it's a responsible and well-thought-out decision, then what awaits you are uh, years of joy and many other good emotions. There are several basic things that you should provide your pet with. And it has more to do with dogs, but some cats can also benefit from them. First of all, species-appropriate raw diet. In another segment, I already talked about it. Not only it will make your pet happy and healthy, it will also significantly lessen your veterinary bill uh, because unfortunately most of the problems pets have nowadays, like uh, chronic kidney disease, have to do with improper upkeep. Wild animals don't have such problems at all. Also having a proper litter box when it comes to cats. Sure, we love the litter to be scented and covered in order to avoid smelling the unpleasant odor. But the fact is that cats prefer the litter as blunt and as simple as possible, just like in nature. And you can avoid having a bad odor by simply cleaning the litter box every day and replacing the litter once a week. As for interaction, all the animals like it. Well, cats maybe less. But there are also various breeds, like Maikun, that are very social and playful. So you should consider this too. Basically, before you take a pet, read everything you can do on their breed, their predispositions, etc. Your pet is another family member, so treat them accordingly. 
So you should have daily games and interactions with your pets. On one hand, it should be a stimulating environment, on the other, stress-free. Cats are particularly sensitive to stress and can develop, a, a, as a result, various health and be behavioral problems. As for dogs, first of all, dogs should have at least two walks a day, each time at least one hour long. Some breeds require even longer walks. If you have a service and shepherd breed dog, then you should seriously consider training them. You can start training your puppy even when they are two months old. And if you think that it can be stressful for your tiny furry baby, the truth is many dogs are actually rather miserable if they have no job to do, no daily duty, or nothing that will stimulate the mind and body. And puppies require not only stimulation, but also rules and regulations. Uh, you know, regulations in the way of limitations. Uh, there are various training programs, but my favorite one is that the training should be incorporated into a playtime and the animal is petted and encouraged after each successful performance. It not only trains your animal, it also creates a greater bond between you two. And not only large breeds can be trained, but even small ones like Yorkshire Terriers actually love to learn new tricks. This way, daily walks and daily interactions pass much faster and much more interesting for you and your animal. And as you can see from many videos on YouTube, not only dogs love training, some cats love playing too. As for other upkeep, uh, proper upkeep tips, uh, the winter is supposedly behind us, but with the upcoming ice age and all, just remember to keep your pets warm. In general, since most of them have a thick coat, except for cats like Sphinx uh, breed, and toy terriers for dogs, etc. They can tolerate the lower temperatures rather well. The key is to keep them dry. Some dog breeds like Husky and Laika can even sleep in the snow, but it's important to see that there is no ice forming on the fur. If they are dry, they should be okay. Some pets like water swimming, some don't. In some cases, it can be rather dangerous for both of you and your pet to swim in the local lake and river, especially if they have ducks swimming nearby, because ducks and other similar birds are reservoirs for many viruses and bacteria. If you've been in a forest or a park, just remember checking your dog for ticks. Or even better, do a weekly massage for your pet, or maybe even more often and at the same time check for all kinds of lumps and unusual things. From the main principle of the happy and fulfilling life for both pets and the owners is to pay attention to your animal, to spend time with them, to care for them, to provide them with proper food and lots of loving attention. And you'll see that all this time and energy spent on your pet are very much worth it. Well, this is it for now. Uh, have a great week. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks, Zoe, for that information. Um, certainly can attest to that, that it's uh, it's really important to keep your pets active. Uh, my dog gets really stir-crazy if she doesn't get out for walks or play with the ball for a while. Um, so, And just important for the psychological health of the animal, also for the physical health. So. Um, well, our, our recipe for today uh, is homemade ham, and uh, mm. if, you, if you look up uh, ham, 
Now, there's there's a lot of different recipes for homemade ham. A lot of them include sugar, and you don't actually need it. Um, of course, everybody loves a sweet ham or a honey ham, um, but if you're avoiding uh, sugar, you can make ham without sugar. And um, it takes a little bit of experimentation, so I'd encourage everybody to play around with this. I'm not going to give the very exact proportions uh, for this recipe, just kind of the general ingredients and some, some general proportions. Um, uh, the one the one thing that is important is the uh, the amount of salt that you use because uh, if you over salt it it can be nigh inedible and I've done that before uh, and it's unfortunate to waste a whole roast when it's too salty to even get into your mouth. Um, so <clears throat> basically, um, you want to start by uh, making your own um, pickling spice. And uh, there are a lot of pickling spices available, too, on the market, but I, I do like to make my own. Uh, and you can do this with um, essentially cinnamon, uh, bay leaves, cloves. Uh, you can use mustard seeds if you want, um, coriander, uh, peppercorns, and uh, dill. Um, so basically, uh, one cinnamon stick uh, broken up into pieces, uh, two bay leaves crushed, two whole cloves, um, two tablespoons coriander seeds, one tablespoon of peppercorns, um, and two teaspoons of dill seeds, and mix those together, uh, and that's your, your pickling spice, uh, so set that aside. Now, you can also add, if you want, um, two tablespoons of dried juniper berries, um, and you can add uh, nutmeg as well if you want to add uh, uh, a whole, you know, a half of an entire nutmeg itself or use about a, um, a half a teaspoon of, uh, of crushed nut, ground nutmeg. Um, and anise, or anise, uh, depending on how you pronounce it, is also really nice in this recipe. Um, so I'd use about a, a quarter teaspoon of, uh, of anise, quarter to a half teaspoon. Um, so those are the general ingredients for the pickling spice. So you wanna get those together uh, if you have those ingredients in your kitchen and you don't want to buy anything new, um, just kind of take, you know, what you have uh, based on what I just read off there and, and put together your own pickling spice, set that aside. And you want a uh, about a 12-pound a uh, pork butt. Um, now, you don't need one that big, but this recipe is specifically for a 12-pound a uh, pork butt roast. Um, if you have something smaller, then kind of adjust this um, to the size of your roast. Um, but for a 12-pound uh, butt roast, you want about two gallons of water. Um, then you want uh, two cups of uh, salt. And now, a lot of recipes call for pickling salt or what's called preg powder number one, which is pink curing salt. Um, personally, I like to use real salt for this. Um, it contains all the minerals that you need. Uh, and it, in my opinion, it works just as well. So if you have real salt or Himalayan pink salt, sea salt, anything like that, um, you want two cups of that. Now, again, keep in mind this is for a 12-pound roast, which is quite large. So adjust the recipe in proportion to the size of your roast. Um, but if you have a 12-pound roast, two gallons of water, two cups of salt, uh, and then uh, three-quarters to a cup of your pickling spice, um, and what you want to do is put the, uh, the salt and the pickling spice into the two gallons of water, um, bring it to a boil, uh, to a rolling boil, stir everything around until it's completely dissolved, 
and then kill it and let kill the heat and let that come down to room temperature. Um, uh, once it's cooled down, make sure that it's all the way completely cooled down. <clears throat> once the, uh, the, your stock pot isn't hot anymore, you can actually throw it in the fridge um, and leave it overnight as well uh, to cool it down. Um, <clears throat> but it's important that the brine uh, is, is cool once you start the curing process. So once it's cooled down, take your pork roast, um, put it into a large uh, non-reactive container, which is very important. Um, personally, I just use a, a stainless steel uh, stock pot and use that. Um, submerge the roast into the brine, and uh, if it floats up, uh, you can weigh it down with something. You know, put a, a plate on top of it with a, a clean rock or a, uh, a glass bowl filled with water, something that will weigh it down underneath the brine. And um, put it in your refrigerator and let it cure for 12 to 14 days. Um, so this is approximately a two-week uh, curing process. So you want to plan ahead for whatever dinner you're going to make this for. Um, but you let the, uh, the ham soak in the brine for 12 to 14 days. Um, <clears throat> take it out. Uh, <clears throat> rinse it really well. Make sure you rinse off the outside. And then you can bake it uh, <clears throat> or roast it in the oven according to the way that you would roast any other any other pot roast. And I like to uh, to do it kind of low and slow, like 225 degrees Fahrenheit for about four hours. Um, or if you're a fan of smoked meats, you can smoke this uh, according to your own recipe as well. If you have a smoker, uh, you can use that. Or if you have a grill, um, you can grill it, uh, again, low and slow. You don't want to really char the outside. You want to give it time uh, to cook all the way through. Um, and then as with, as with any pork, um, make sure that you check the internal temp before you're done and you want it at between 150 to 160 degrees Fahrenheit on the inside um, before you're going to cut it up. But the, uh, <clears throat> the brine makes a really nice ham. And uh, I would just reemphasize, make sure that your proportions of salt to the size of the meat are appropriate. So for a 12-pound roast, two cups of salt, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So a six-pound roast, one cup and, you know, figure it out from there. Um, but if you do over-salt it, it's going to be kind of hard to eat. But this is a really simple way to make ham. Now, the uh, the curing salt, the pink uh, preg powder number one, as it's commonly referred to, is, is what gives it that pink color that you're familiar uh, with when you eat ham. Um, if you do it this way, it's not going to come out pink. It's actually going to look like white pork, but it will taste like ham, which is kind of a weird experience. Um, mm. This, I... I haven't tried this yet, but I wanted to bring it up because I'm curious, and I'll probably try this in the future, is that you could use something like beet juice or uh, red cabbage juice, basically boil that in a small amount of water until the water turns red, and then add that to your brine to attempt to add the red color to the meat. Um, and, of course, the beet juice would add a little bit of sweetness as well to the ham. Um, so, like I said, that's something I haven't tried yet. Um, but I, I do think I'm going to try that in the future, and I'd be curious to hear anybody's uh, stories if they experiment with that. So and that's ham. That's how to make your own ham, and you can do it without sugar, uh, and it tastes great. Mm, it sounds delicious. It's quite good. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't so care if our, it was pink or not. <laughs> yeah, it's. I, I don't know. It's not really that big of a deal for me either. Some people are mm -hmm. like, well, it's not pink, it's not ham, you know, but really, you know, the, the only 
the only reason ham is pink is because of the curing salt. Um, other than that, you you know, it tastes like ham, but it comes out white, just like pork. So it just depends on your preferences, mm-hmm. I suppose. So that's our uh, that's our recipe and our show for today. Um, I think we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. Um, just want to say thanks to everybody for tuning in. And uh, be sure to tune in next week at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern on Monday. Um, and we'll be back with another show. Thanks, everybody. For Bye, everybody. Bye.